Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for your word. We thank you for your love and your grace and your infinite mercy. We thank you, Lord, that, that though the Bible was written through the inspiration of your Holy Spirit several thousand years ago, that, Lord, it still has a perfect impact on our lives today and an application to each person who's in the room this morning. And, Father, I pray, Lord, that our hearts would be prepared to hear from you. And, Lord, that you would be our teacher and that we would receive from you what you desire to minister to us. So, Lord, we love you and we praise you. We thank you again for your grace. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. By the way, just on a quick side note, I am officially full-time at Calvary Chapel Santa Cruz. Praise the Lord. Pretty exciting. Absolutely a blessing. After 15 years of doing ministry, I don't know what to do with myself. I'm really excited. I'm looking forward to spending more time with you guys. I'm looking forward to spending more time praying for you guys. And I want to just be available to you, to serve you, to love you, to minister to you. Remember again that pastor means under rower, means servant. And I'm here to serve you. So in any way that I can, just let me know. Well, John chapter 8, I want to give you a quick background. Then in John 7, we saw this, this fierce debate going on about the person of Jesus Christ. And we saw that there were several different reactions to him. Some said he was a prophet. Others even said, rightly so, that he was the Christ. But there were, the Jewish religious leaders said that he was demon-possessed, and they sought to kill our Savior. And we know eventually that that would come to pass. Sadly, most people, though they heard his words, did not believe. Even as they marveled at just how powerful he taught the Bible, they still did not receive him as the Savior that they were looking for. The religious leaders accused him of being, again, demon-possessed. They wanted to kill him. They were ignorant of Scripture. Even though it taught about the Messiah, they didn't fully understand. If you remember from a couple weeks ago, they didn't even know where Jesus was born. They didn't take the time to find out who Jesus was. And sadly, there are many people today that have a, a surface knowledge of who Jesus is, but they don't truly know him. They haven't truly taken the time to find out who Jesus Christ is and to realize that he's our Lord, he's our Savior, and he's our King. We saw in John 7 that even his own brothers didn't believe in him. We talked about the fact that, yes, Jesus did have earthly brothers, and they did not believe in him. His half-brothers, same mom, different dad, right? And these guys grew up with the Lord, but still had not given their lives to him. We also saw Jesus openly proclaim himself to be the Messiah. He told the Pharisees that they didn't know the Father, which to them was the ultimate um, just blast, basically. These guys thought they knew God better than anybody, and Jesus said, you don't know God at all. Because they thought knowing God was about religion. They thought it was by the clothes that they wore and the things that they did that somehow they would earn God's approval. I want to encourage you today to really talk to you about grace. That we're not saved by our good works or by the things that we do, but by the great work that He did for us on the cross. We're going to see that very clearly this morning. We also saw Jesus say to them, if anyone thirsted, they were to come to him and drink. We saw him teaching with authority. We saw him telling them he was going to go away to his father, and they didn't understand. We also saw them send out religious leaders, the Levites, these officers, to, to come and grab Jesus and put him in, in bonds. They wanted to take him so they could kill him. And when they went to Jesus, his words were so powerful that they walked away from him empty-handed. And yet they still did not follow him. The Pharisees then boasted when they heard all the people talking about Jesus, said, you know what, we're the most religious guys here and we don't believe in him. You must be dumb to believe in Jesus Christ. And there are still people like that today that think that because of their education that somehow they're smarter or they have more wisdom. And the reality is that we need to come 
like a little Olivia this morning, we need to come with childlike faith before Almighty God. He desires that we would come to Him with the heart of a little child and say, Lord, I give my life to You, I love You. And we'll talk about that again more this morning. We also saw finally that Nicodemus spoke up, and, and as the chapter ended, everyone went to his own house. They had been looking for a physical Messiah, but they went home without Jesus. They, they had seen the miracles, they had heard His powerful words, and yet they went home. And so we're going to pick up in chapter 8, and we're going to see some very clear contrast, first of all, between grace and the law. People think that they're on two opposite extremes, but the reality is that the law reveals our need for grace. Law reveals, as we will see, that we are sinners in desperate need of a Savior. We'll see the contrast between light and darkness, and finally the contrast between life and death. And so I titled the message this morning, God's Grace and the Law. Basically contrasting the graciousness of God and the wickedness of man. So let's begin in verse 1 of John chapter 8. And it says in actually verse 53, And everyone went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now remember, this was the Feast of Tabernacles that just ended. And remember that the Feast of Tabernacles was one of those feasts where every male above the age of 20 would come from wherever they were into Jerusalem to celebrate the feast. Now the Feast of Tabernacles was in remembrance of God's provision for them while they were in the wilderness. It's also called the Feast of Booths. And they would literally set up little tents and live in them to remember how God had delivered them during their time in the wilderness. That He fed them with manna from the sky. That He protected them from their enemy. That He gave them water out of the rock. And also that He led them by a pillar of fire. So that everywhere they went, they just followed that pillar and it led and guided and directed them as they wandered through the wilderness. So one of the things that they did, and we'll see an application for this later, is they would light these big, huge golden candles in remembrance of God's direction and provision for them as they were in the wilderness. But at the end of this feast, Jesus has just spoken to them. He's told them the truth of who He was, and sadly, most of them went home without Him. They went home. They didn't follow after Jesus. We contrasted that with the, the men on the road to Emmaus. When they, when they heard Jesus speak, they wouldn't let Him go. They held on to Him. They wanted to know more. But these guys went home, and they were happy, oh, the feast is over, let's go on home. And Jesus, it says, went up to the Mount of Olives. Now, the interesting part about this to me, and if you've been to Israel, you know this is true, that the Mount of Olives is not that far away. It's a walk, and you go up on this this mountainside, and you can look out, and you can see Jerusalem very clearly. And one month from now, we're going to be going to Israel. I want to encourage you, as many of you as can, come with us. We'll be sitting on the Mount of Olives, and we'll be taking a look at this chapter. We'll be sitting you know, on the Sea of Galilee and talking about Jesus walking on the water. We'll sit at the tomb where Jesus rose from the dead, and we'll be teaching about that. It's just the most awesome time. I want to encourage you to be praying about that. But up on that Mount of Olives, Jesus would be there. And it's interesting that the religious leaders, these spiritual men of the day, all went home to their mansions. They all went home to their places where they could, could go and, and be in a place where they, they were served and ministered to. And these religious leaders were known for their, for their great finances, their great wealth. These guys were all about being in religion for the money. Does that sound familiar? And so these guys went away to their mansions, but here he is, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Alpha and the Omega, Almighty God, and what does he do? He goes up onto the Mount of Olives, the place he often went, and he would pray. You know, it's been said that Jesus prayed for the people while the Pharisees prayed on the people. 
You know, they would come after them and look for ways to, to take from them where the Lord went and lay down his life for them and love them and serve them and minister to them. So Jesus is up on the Mount of Olives and there, it may, maybe even in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's praying for them, ministering to them on their behalf. Jesus had no place to lay his head and the religious leaders lived in mansions. Pretty sad state of affairs. They were so focused on the world, that's one of the reasons that they missed the Savior. And so Jesus is up there and he's praying for them and communing with the Father. Again, praying for the people. Verse 2. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. Jesus prays all night long, he communes with the Father, and he comes down to deliver to the people what the fa- he and the Father have, have been in communion about. And he comes in and he brings to them truth. The Pharisees have been at home having a party all night. Who knows what they've been doing? They've been having their servants serve them. And, and these guys come in and they're, they're the spiritual leaders of the day. They're the, the ultra-hypocrites, the ultra-mask wearers, the men who, who prayed upon people. And here our Savior is. He's gone up on the mountain. He's prayed for the people. He now comes down into the temple to minister to their hearts, to share with them the truth of the Word of God. The word quickly got out that Jesus was there and all the people, it says in verse 2, all the people came to him. I love that. You know what? I pray that, that all the people of Santa Cruz County would come to him. Amen? That they would desire to hear his word. They would desire to know him in a personal and intimate way. And all the people came to him. Now you've got to remember that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, remember I told you the Sadducees were truly sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection. And what kind of religious leader would that be? If you didn't believe in life after death, I don't get it. That's not a program I want to sign up for. But here these guys are, and, there's, and the scribes and these lawgivers and these religious men and the guys who wear the black robes with the wheelbarrow full of rules with heaven at the end and, you know, this torture. And, and they put bondage on people. And when they saw all these people coming to Jesus... And they heard the authority with which he taught, they were envious. And so they once again plotted, we've got to find a way to trip this guy up. All the people are going to follow him. If they follow him, they won't give to us anymore. We won't be able to go home to our mansions at night. We won't be able to live this this luxurious lifestyle that being a religious leader has afforded us. We've got to do something about this Jesus. And so we're going to see that they come up with yet another plot. Verse 3. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in, her in their midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. The people come to hear Jesus, and the scribes and the Pharisees come to trap Jesus. They came to entrap him. And by the way, if you come to trap God, you're going to lose every time. Amen? He put the stars in the sky. I don't think you're getting one over on God. Amen? He knows our hearts. He's Almighty God. He's the creator of the universe. And here these guys are coming to trap Him. The people come in sincerity wanting to hear from Him, and they come desiring to trap Him. Upon hearing that, again, He was in the temple, they conjured up this plot to try to somehow trip up the Savior. Now this plot surrounded an adulterous woman. And in this attempt to pit Jesus once again against Moses... You know, the religious people of the day followed after Moses. They quoted the Mosaic Law, and they were trying to show the people that Jesus was contrary to Moses. But here's the reality, you guys. Jesus said, I did not come to do away with the law, but to fulfill it. 
Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that Moses wrote down. If you've been coming on Wednesday night and you've been going through Exodus with us, it's Jesus, 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 Jesus all over the Old Testament. It's hard to find a chapter in the Bible where you don't see Jesus clearly presented. And so they're saying he was contrary to Moses. And so they bring this woman before him caught in adultery. Now let me tell you something. In those days, adultery was heavy duty. Here's what it says in Deuteronomy 22. I'm just going to read this to you. If, you. if you take notes, just write it down. It's 22 to 24, verse 22. If a man is found lying with a woman married to a husband, then both of them shall die. The man, will lay, if, the man that lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall put away the evil from you. If a young woman who is a virgin is betrothed to a husband and a man finds her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out of the gate of the city. You shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry out in the city, and the man, because he humbled his neighbor's wife, so you shall put the evil away from among you. Now, it's interesting. You know, uh, I forget his name now. It's escaping me. But a pastor once said that if they did that today, you wouldn't be able to drive around town because there'd just be a pile of rocks everywhere you went. You imagine they stoned everybody that committed adultery today? You just, there'd just be a big rock pile everywhere you went. But in those days, when you committed adultery, there was no, it was, this is not a game. They would literally bring you in. And if you go through the Mishnah, which is the, the verbal tradition of the Jews, what they did was, if you were somebody who was single, they would take you and they would stand you in a box of manure. And then they would wrap a cloth around your neck and have two men stand on either side and they would pull on each side until you choked to death. If you were married, they would bring you and stand you in that box and they would throw stones at you until you died. Then after you died, they would bury you in that manure and they would plant a tree in the box so that everybody who walked by would be a remembrance of the fact that if you commit adultery, you're going to end up being manure. You're going, to be, you're going to get stoned to death. This was heavy duty. Now, Josephus said that it was very rare that people were convicted because for them to be convicted, there had to be at least two witnesses and they had to be caught in the very act. Something that would be very difficult to do. Accusations, again, had to have at least two witnesses. So it was pretty rare that, that people were actually brought and stoned to death because of it. But it's interesting to me that these guys show up. Here's Jesus. He's teaching in the temple. And they come in in the morning with this woman and say, we caught her in adult. Now, how do you catch somebody? And it's interesting to me that if they were truly into justice, it says in Deuteronomy that both the man and the woman were to be stoned to death. Where's the man? They got the woman. Where's the guy? If they're caught in the very act, where's the guy? Now, I don't know for sure, but I, I have a feeling that the guy was in on it. That he was part of what the Pharisees had planned. That if they had this plot against the Lord to somehow try to trip him up, they had to enlist somebody and say, dude, you know, come here. Here's the program. We'll give you some money. Go sleep with that married woman over there. We're going to come in and grab her. Then we can bring her before Jesus, and then we'll trip him up with the Mosaic law. But, you know, we're not going to be able to, we can't just go knocking on door to door trying to find somebody. We've got to make this program work. What do you think? It's even possible that the man was a Pharisee or a scribe. The ultimate hypocrisy. Here they are trying to trap Jesus, and these guys are doing what is very ungodly. And so they bring this woman, 
and they throw her down before the Lord. He's teaching, and they interrupt him abruptly, and they bring this woman in caught in adultery. Verse 5. Now Moses in the law commanded us that, that such should be stoned, but what do you say? Moses says this, what do you say? They want to trip up Jesus. Now, They've tried this before. They think they come up with these perfect plans that no matter what Jesus says, they're going to catch him. And they thought in their minds, you know, if we bring him and he says, well, no, don't stone her because he's a merciful God, they're going to say, oh, man, you know what? He disagrees with Moses and none of the people will follow him and we'll have him. But if he says stone her, then he's breaking Roman law, and then we can go tell the Romans, and they can arrest him, and then everyone will know that he's not this great God of mercy that he claims to be. And so no matter what he says, we've got him. And so they bring the woman in, and they throw her down. Now imagine being the woman. The woman knew the law, and the woman was caught. She may have been entrapped, but nonetheless, she knew that she was guilty. And here she is, before Jesus, in the temple, as the people are gathered there, all the people are there, there's this huge crowd of people. Can you imagine coming in and being thrown down at the foot of the rabbi, of the one who's teaching, in this case, Jesus Christ, in front of all of the people? We'll see later it was in the, in the court of the treasury, which means the court of women, which means it was the common place where everyone gathered. And here she is, down on her face before this rabbi, caught in adultery, deserving of stoning, no doubt thinking, I'm toast, I'm done, that's it, I'm going to die. I, I, I'm guilty. I'm guilty. What am I going to do? And they bring her before Jesus, the scribes and the Pharisees. Again, I would think they probably came in pretty smug. We got them. Oh, here we go. No matter what he does... We got him. There's nothing he can do. Well, guess what? You can't trap God. Look at verse 6. And they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. Instead of judging the woman, Jesus is going to judge the judges. He's not going to judge the woman. He's going to judge the judges. He sees the hearts of men. He knows who these men are. They think they're putting one over on God. They show up. They think they've got him trapped. He sees their hearts, and instead of them judging him, he's going to judge them. You know what? It brings false comfort to a depraved and sinful heart to find someone worse than ourselves. A lot of times we look around and we try to grade on a curve. You know, well, I'm not perfect, but I'm not Charles Manson. I know some of the young people said, who's Charles Manson? And that's, I, man, I, I didn't realize I was getting old. I just said, who's Charles Manson? Well, bad guy, okay? But, you know, we'll look and we'll find someone worse than us. You know, you'll be driving down the freeway going 90 and someone passes you going 110 and you go, see, I'm not as bad as that guy. And we, we have this comparative relativism when it comes to morality. And these guys look and they think, look, we found someone caught in adultery. And instead of looking at their own hearts, their own hypocrisy, their own desperate need for Almighty God, instead they come in and they cast this woman down before Almighty God and cast her down in hopes of entrapping Jesus Christ. While accusing their, another, their own evil is either lessened or in some cases in their own mind forgotten. Now how did Jesus respond? He bent down and he wrote in the dust. Man, I find this interesting. Only place in the Bible where we see Jesus writing. Now, I'm sure he no doubt wrote other things, but the only time we see it recorded in Scripture, 
But you know what it reminds me of? You go back to Deuteronomy, or excuse me, Exodus chapter 20, and what, what, what happened with the Ten Commandments? It says the finger of God wrote the Ten Commandments on the tablets. Later, you see in Daniel, when they were in rebellion against God, remember what happened in chapter 5, that the hand of God came down and wrote the judgment of God upon the wall. That's where you get the word, the, the writings on the wall. You ever heard that term before? It's out of Daniel chapter 5. It's amazing how many things come from the Bible. And so now we see that very same finger because Jesus Christ is God. The same finger that wrote, thou shalt not commit adultery. The same finger that wrote the law is now going to bend down and write in the dust. And so these men are there. They're accusing this, this woman. They've got her nailed. She knows that she's guilty. You don't even see her putting on a defense. She's guilty. There's nothing she can say. She's going to be stoned to death. It's just moments away. She's probably thinking, oh, no, my life is over. And Jesus bends down, and he writes in the dust. I love it. The finger of God wrote and brought conviction to the accusers of their own sin. Look at verse 7. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. The law of Moses is to convict us so that we will see that we are sinners in need of a Savior. This woman who's on her face already knows it. She's laying there, she's guilty, she knows that she's done, she knows she's deserving of death. These religious hypocrites come in, they think they're going to trap the creator of the universe, and they come walking in in their piety, and their black robes on, and very smug, man, we got her, we got him, we're going we're to get rid of her, we're going to get rid of Jesus all in one fell swoop, we'll have a big feast at my house, another party tonight. And they come in to trap Almighty God, and instead he reaches down, and he writes in the ground. Now, he says to them, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. Now Jesus is not excusing sin here. What he's doing instead, he's condemning those who are guilty even though they haven't been caught. Here's the thing, you guys. We're guilty whether we've been caught or not. Amen? Whether someone has nabbed you or caught you, we are all sinners in need of a Savior. The law, the Bible says, is a taskmaster or a schoolmaster that leads us to the cross. It's a mirror that comes before our face that makes us all realize that we're not perfect. And there's only one who can judge our imperfection, and that's the perfect one, and that's Jesus Christ. And so he reaches down and he writes in the sand, and the, I love the word here, though. He says that he was without sin. This could be interpreted, he who is without the very same sin. The word there in the original language is katagraphane, which means to write against. He bent down and he wrote against them. Whatever he wrote was revealing to them that they were sinners. It was revealing their own guilt and that they were guilty of the very same sin. You know, it's an old saying that when you point your finger at someone else, you got four fingers pointing back. Amen? And so often, we love to be accusers of others, when instead we ought to be looking at our own heart and saying, Lord, where am I at with you? Lord, look and search my heart, O God. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And instead, these guys come bringing accusation in their self-righteousness and their piety. I don't care if you've been a Christian for 75 years and you got the whole Bible memorized, you are a sinner in desperate need of a Savior. Amen? And you can't come off as self-righteous or better than someone else. We're just one beggar leading another beggar to the bread. Amen? We are all desperate for Him. 
And we need to come desperately to him. And we see these guys in their self-righteousness, and Jesus says to them, you're guilty of the same sin. It's interesting, as I was looking through my uh, concordance in the middle of the night last night, my last middle of the night study in Lord Willing, in Jeremiah, speaking of the Messiah, it says in chapter 17, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be ashamed. Those who depart from you shall be written in the earth, because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. Jesus reaches down and he writes in the dust. And I believe, I don't know, but I believe that he may have been writing down the name of every man and the name of a woman next to it. Puts his name down, and oh, by the way, here's the name of the woman that you committed the very same sin with. Write another name down, here's the name of the woman. Another name down, here's the name of the woman. Can you imagine, they're all standing there. Let he who's without the very same sin, you cast the first stone. The accusers were to cast the first stone. And they look down and they see their name in the dust, and they see the name of maybe a woman next to it. I don't know for sure, but just supposition on my part. But whatever they saw, it brought immediate conviction. Whether it was the name of a woman, or or whether it was a sin that they had committed, whatever it was, it brought immediate conviction. And that's what the Word of God is to do. It convicts us of our sins so that we will see our need for a Savior. And so we see that these guys' attitude is going to change real quick. Look at verse Eight, and he again stooped down and wrote on the ground. Again, writing down. They come with accusations, and he answers them by writing down the word. Again, it's the word that reveals our sin. It's the word of God that shows us our desperate need for a Savior. He bends down. He writes it down. Again, that mirror that reveals to us our need for him. Verse 9. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in their midst. You know what? The Word of God brings conviction. There can be no conversion until there's been conviction. Until I see that I am a sinner, I will see no need for a Savior. Until I realize that I'm desperate and that my life's a mess without him, until I realize that he's the only hope for me, I will never cry out to him and ask him to be my Lord and my Savior and my King. We must come to the end of ourselves. And the Lord very clearly just writes it down. You know what, guys? You think that you're righteous. You may put on an act in front of the whole world. They all might might think that you're these religious leaders wearing these black robes and you're wonderful guys. You may have the big house up on the hill. You may have people bow before you. You may have people bringing tithes and offerings to you. You may stand on the street corner and have everybody think how pious you are, but I know your heart and you're a sinner and you need to be saved. That's the message of Jesus Christ. Now, it's a message of the law, but it's also a message of grace because we're going to see his response to the woman. Here's this woman who knows she's guilty. The men who come in and think, oh man, we're perfect, we're righteous, look how awesome we are, smug. The Lord brings them a harsh word, says you guys need to repent. But the woman who comes is before him who knows she's guilty, who's laying there in her sin, who's deserving of death, Jesus has a totally different message for her. You know, if we come to the Lord and we're self-righteous and pious, we're going to face His judgment. But if we come before Him like the woman at the well, broken and desperate because of our sin, knowing that we're sinners deserving of death, we're going to receive a message of grace and love and mercy. Amen? If you come before Him thinking you've got it all figured out, 
you're going to find out that you're not all that you think you are. Brought to this place of brokenness and desperation. You know, there was a, uh, an evangelist that came and visited our church in Southern California when I was a youth pastor, and he used this analogy that I really like. His name's Ray Comfort. You may have heard of him. And his analogy was just to define and understand our desperate need for God. And he used the analogy of a man getting on a plane. And he's told when he gets on the plane that as long as he wears this big bird in some parachute, that the plane ride's going to be perfect. And everything's going to be wonderful. But just put on, you've got to put this parachute on, and your plane flight will be like no other plane flight you've ever had before. And he's a little hesitant, but he thinks, well, I'll give it a shot. He throws the parachute on, and immediately he finds out this thing's heavy. He's walking down the aisle, and it's burdensome on his back. People start taunting him and mocking him. Look at that doofus with a parachute on. What's he thinking, right? He gets and he sits in his seat. He can't sit all the way back. He's pressed down in front. It's, it's burdensome. It's heavy. It's hurting his back. The lady comes walking down the aisle with the cart, and his parachute's in the way, and they're jamming by, and he's getting his head stuck. In. And before you know it, the whole tray of coffee gets spilled down on his back, and he gets burned. He said, dude, this is not a smoother trip. It's the worst trip I ever had in my life. He takes the parachute off, and he throws it out in the aisle and says, I'm done with that stupid parachute. Now take the same guy and tell him that, by the way, the plane is going to go down about halfway through the flight. And only those with a parachute are going to jump to safety. The guy's got a whole different attitude about the parachute, right? He gets on and people are going, doofus with a parachute. He's like, dude, plane's going down, man. You need a parachute. Now, I'm, I, bro, get, you better get back there before they run out. I'm telling you. you need, he gets and sits in the seat. He's not worried about being uncomfortable. He's hanging on to that thing with dear life. Someone comes by and spills coffee on him. He says, dude, I'm glad I got the parachute. Thank you, Jesus, right? That's how it is when it comes to our sin. If we realize that we are sinners in desperate need of a Savior, we don't just try God. You know, come to Jesus and your life will be perfect. You'll be on the cruise ship and everything will be wonderful. No, come to Jesus because the plane is going down. Amen? And you know what? Only those who know Him will jump to safety. Only those who have a relationship with Him, when we stand before God on Judgment Day, will He say, enter in my good and faithful servant, because He's paid the price for us. We need to be holding on to Jesus. Amen? And we see here that this woman came, and these men were so self-righteous, they saw no need for Him. And here this woman is, she comes and she's laying before the Lord. And we're going to see grace. And we're going to see it in just how He begins to address her. Look at verse 10. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? The word there for woman is gune. It's the same word he used when he spoke to his mother. He looks down at this woman who's broken. She's just committed adultery. She's been caught in the very act. She is guilty. And he doesn't look at her and say, Harlot. He doesn't say, Vile woman. He doesn't look down upon her. Instead, he looks and Jesus sees to her heart. And he says, woman, where are your accusers? You know what? The Bible says that Jesus did not come to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. We were condemned already because of our sin. And Jesus didn't come to condemn us, but to save us. And here this woman is, Jesus, she's waiting. She's probably, ugh, the rocks are going to be coming any moment. She's totally desperate. Her life's a disaster. It's soon to be over. And Jesus addresses her with kindness and love. And he says to her, Woman, where are your accusers? Look at verse 11. Where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one. And here's the key 
to the whole thing. What's the next word? No one what? Lord. This is how we know that the woman's heart has changed. The religious leaders never called him Lord. They may have called him master or rabbi or teacher, but we see that God has touched her heart, and Jesus has, and she calls him Lord. No one Lord. You know what? As soon as we call him Lord, there are no more accusers. Amen? Our sin has been paid for. We're heaven bound. Amen? We're going. God has taken, he's paid the price for us. And we see this woman, and she says, no one, Lord. And he's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. And we see just the picture of God's incredible grace as she again comes to him guilty, and he touches her, and he transforms her life. He didn't take her sin lightly, but look what he says to her here. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Jesus, the only one that could have cast a stone at her. He's the only one that was righteous. He's the only one that was without the very same sin. And instead of throwing stones at her, instead of condemning her, he saved her. Grace. G-R-A-C-E. God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. That's grace. God's riches at His expense. It was not cheap for Him to let her go. He did not take her sin lightly. You know why He didn't take her sin lightly? You know how that's true? Because He took that sin upon Himself not many days later. When He would go to the cross for her, He would take the abuse. He would be the one that would be put to death in her place that she might have eternal life. Jesus Christ took our place. We're that adulterous woman. We're the ones who've committed the sin. We're guilty. But praise God for His grace. Praise God for His mercy. Amen? That He loves us so very much that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He does say, Be holy for I am holy. Go and sin no more. And like the woman, we're going to one day all come before the righteous judge. And it's our standard before Him that matters, not the accusations of men. It doesn't matter what men say. It's what does God say. It doesn't matter how popular you are with men because the Pharisees were very popular. It doesn't matter how much money you have in your bank account. It doesn't matter how charismatic you are. It doesn't matter if all the juries in the world will let you go free. What matters is, where do you stand with Almighty God? Have you called Him Lord? Is He your Lord? Do you know Him in a personal and intimate way? Is He your best friend? He can be. He desires to be. He created you to have that relationship with Him. And just as He ministered to this woman, so He desires to minister to you. Verse 12. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Here in total contrast to these to these hypocrites who come to, to cast stones at a woman to put her to death, Jesus steps up and gives the contrast between light and darkness. He says, what you have seen is darkness. What you have seen is men walking in their flesh. I am the light of the world. What does light do? It does two things. It exposes darkness and it illuminates truth. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He exposed the darkness of the hypocrites. He exposed the darkness of the Pharisees. And he illuminated truth to the woman caught in adultery. He showed her how she could have a transformed life. And he revealed that these, these guys who thought they were so religious and pious 
how they were really sinful men. He saw their hearts. Here's the reality, you guys. Jesus sees the heart of everyone in the room this, this morning. Nobody's here by chance. He knows where you're at. He knows that why you came here today, and I want to tell you before, more than anything else, that he loves you so much that he'd rather die than live without you. He loves you. He is the light of the world. He wants to illuminate your heart. He wants to illuminate the truth to you. And at the same time, he'll expose your desperate need for him as Lord and Savior. The word there he uses again is I am. Remember at the burning bush when Moses said, I'm going to go and you want me to go back and bring the people out of bondage? Who shall I say sent me? What's your name? God, what's your name? And God said, I am that I am. And here we see the very same words coming out of Jesus' mouth because Jesus Christ is God. And he says, I am the light of the world. And you know what? He is the light. He is the way. He is the truth. A claim of deity. And where Jesus taught during the Feast of Tabernacles, there was this golden lampstand. Remember I told you this is the Feast of Tabernacles. And right behind him would have been this golden lampstand that now was put out. This thing that they had been shining brightly on the Feast of Tabernacles to remember that pillar of fire that led them through the wilderness, that led them to the land of promise. Now instead, that fire had been extinguished, and Jesus is standing there, and he says, I am the light of the world. You know that pillar of fire you followed from the wilderness into the land of promise? Guess what? I'm that light. He's the light that we follow from the wilderness of sin into the land of promise of eternal life. Amen? It's him that we follow. He's that pillar. He's the light of the world. Look unto him. And light exposes darkness. Light cannot be hidden in the midst of the dark. In the tabernacle, the Shekinah glory of God would fill the tabernacle, but the sin, because of sin, the glory had departed. Ichabod. The world had lost, was lost in darkness. It had no hope apart from Jesus. And those who walk in darkness do so because they love it rather than the light. The glory had departed, and instead they had to use artificial light. You know, before they didn't have to use that light because the Shekinah glory of God was falling upon this, the, the tabernacle. And they would come in and just His light was there. But now because the glory had departed, they had to use artificial light. And you know what? That's happening in the church today. The glory's departed, and instead they use artificial light. Let's use programs. You know, let's have Bozo the Clown come on Sunday. We can gather a big crowd that way, right? Instead of bringing people into the presence of the creator of the universe, we use artificial light to draw a crowd. You know, it was once said that if, if the Holy Spirit was removed from the first century church, the 95% of what they did would change and everyone would notice. But if the Holy Spirit was removed from the church today, 95% of what we do would not change and no one would notice. Because we've got into programs, we've got the artificial light up, instead of falling in love with the Lord and, and looking for the Shekinah glory of God, we're seeking after the programs and looking at things from a worldly perspective. Verse 13, the Pharisees therefore said to him, you bear witness of yourself, your witness is not true. You know what, they can't refute his words, so they just call him a liar. Now, it's interesting to me, who's calling him a liar? The guys that just showed up, a big mob of them with stones in their hand to stone a woman, saying, we're all witnesses of what she did, and they walk away convicted, dropping their rocks, right? And now they come back and accuse our Savior of being a liar. Verse 14, Jesus answered and said to them, even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. For I know where I come from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from nor where I am going. You judge according to, the, according to the flesh. I judge no one. 
Jesus came from heaven. He's God made manifest in the flesh. He judges with holy judgment. He does not judge according to the flesh. Jesus doesn't judge us based on how well we're dressed. Jesus doesn't judge us based on what kind of car we drive, how much money we have, how affluent we are, how good looking we are, how charismatic we are. Those are the things that the world judges us on. Amen? The world will treat people different based on what kind of car they drive or what position they have in the office or whatever it might be. And we esteem people from the fleshly perspective, but God doesn't. The Bible says that man looks on the outward appearance and God looks on the heart. And we stand before him one, one day, we won't have our Mercedes Benz with us. Amen? We won't have our big house or our 401k plan. We won't have the, the title of CEO next to our name. We stand before God. We won't have PhD or master's degree or whatever degree you've got. We won't have any of that stuff to come before God because none of that matters to Him. He looks at our heart. He judges with righteous judgment because He's a righteous and a faithful and an awesome and a wonderful God. Verse 16. And yet if I do judge, my judgment is true for I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. It is written in your law that the testimony of men is true. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. In those days, you had to have at least two witnesses. And Jesus said, I don't witness just of myself, but I have witnesses that bear witness of me. My Father bears witness of me. When Jesus was baptized, who remembers what happened? When he came up out of the water, remember that? The sky opened up. And God the Father said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now, I would think there'd be mass repentance. Amen? I mean, sky opens up. This is my... No, that's good enough for me. That works. We've been waiting for the Messiah. I'm going, right? But what happened was most people walked away. The Word of God and the prophecy pointing to the Messiah all points to Jesus Christ. He's the fulfillment of all of it. Another witness. His miracles... Walking on water, healing the lame man, healing the, the leper, healing the blind man, feeding 5,000 with one kid's little sack lunch. I mean, all these things that Jesus did all point to the fact that he is the Messiah. They all bear witness of the fact that he truly is who he says he is. And yet people didn't believe. You know why? Because they wanted to be on the throne. If you're here this morning and you struggle with giving your life to the Lord, it's because you don't want to let go of the throne. And we all struggle with it. Don't feel like the Lone Ranger. Amen? We all want, well, Lord, I, you know, I surrender. How about some? You know, I surrender all. No, I surrender some. That's a good song for me, right? Lord, I'll give you some. But, you know, come on, Lord. Don't, let's not get too heavy, right? But here's the reality. He's a loving and gracious Heavenly Father. He knows what's best for us. And you know what? He desires that we give Him our all because He will bless us exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. They didn't understand that the law did not, redeem, did not redeem people, but condemned them. It revealed their sin to them. These guys thought that keeping the law was the way of redemption. Jesus said, look, these people, my father is a testimony of me. Verse 19, they said to him, where is your father? And Jesus answered and said, you know neither me or my father. If you had known me, you would also know my father. You cannot know the father apart from the son. You know, many people, we're not going to be able to finish the text the way I wanted to today, but many people say, I believe in God. Many people say there are many paths to God. But let me tell you something. If you don't know Jesus Christ, you cannot know God. Amen? Jesus is saying, look, you cannot, apart, if you don't know me, you cannot know the Father. 
You know, it's been said there are many paths to God, and that's true, but only one leads to eternal life. Amen? Because everyone will stand before Almighty God one day. Some people like to think of God being up on this mountain, and there's all these little paths going up the mountain, right? And no matter which path you take, they're all going to end up there. You can go through the Buddha path, or the Hare Krishna path, or the New Age path, or the being a good person path. Or the, got all these paths up to Almighty God, and He's sitting up there in a lotus position waiting for you to show up. That's not it, okay? That's not God. It's not a bunch of paths up to God. You know what it is? It's a sheer cliff. It's a straight rock that no man can climb up. You can't be good enough to reach up to God. And that's why, in our sin, that because we could not reach up to God, He reached down to us. And He did not reach down to us through a little fat guy named Buddha. And He didn't reach down to us through Hinduism or Muhammad or Joseph Smith and the Mormon church. He didn't reach down to us through any of these sinful men who were sinners in need of a Savior themselves. He didn't reach down through the Pharisees or the Sadducees. He reached down through the person of Jesus Christ. God made manifest in the flesh. And here's how he proposed to every one of us in the room. He said, I am willing to die for you. I want to have a relationship with you. I want to close with this analogy. We'll have to finish. I was going to go through verse 30, but it ain't going to happen. Jesus referred to these religious men later as sons of the devil. And these guys who thought they were real holy and real righteous, who thought that somehow, you know, their, their good standing before men went something before God, God was standing in front of them and they missed it. God was right there. The Messiah that they had studied in the law and they didn't understand it. They didn't recognize him when he was standing right there. You know what? It was a divine appointment that Jesus was there and they missed it. And I want to encourage you. You're here this morning by divine appointment. I pray that you don't miss it. You know, Friday was my last day at work. I went up to a guy in my office. I put my arm around him and I said, Bro, I just want you to know that I love you. And when I get to heaven, I want you to be there. I know you made a commitment to the Lord many years ago and you haven't been walking with him but I want you to know you can take a million steps away from God it's only one step back he loves you when you when I get to heaven I want you to be there my message to you this morning is I want you all to be there every one of you and it's not going to be because you're nice to pastor Dave because I'm a stinking sinner in need of a savior myself amen it's not because you sat in a hard chair for 45 minutes listening to pastor Dave right it's not how you're going to get to heaven right it's because of, and I'll give you this analogy one more time. When, I, when my wife and I got married, I went to Shadowbrook Restaurant. I took her to Shadowbrook Restaurant. I got down on my knee. I pulled out a ring, and I asked her to be my wife. And she said yes. 18 years ago, good thing, praise the Lord, right? We got four beautiful children, praise God. She said yes. And as soon as she said yes to my proposal, I took a ring out of my pocket that she had no idea that I had, and it wasn't very big because I had no money. And I put that little tiny ring that you can barely see on her hand. And then a few months later when we got married, she took my name. We went down the aisle, we said I do, and her name went from being Lynette Weir to Lynette Johnston. Now why am I sharing this analogy with you? Here's why. Because Jesus Christ is proposing to every single one of you in the room. And he didn't do it by getting it down on his knee at Shadowbrook Restaurant, but he hung on a cross and he said, I love you so much and I want you to be my bride. I'm willing to suffer and die in your place. I'm willing to take all of your sin upon myself. And all you need to do is say, I'm a sinner. Receive my, my invitation. You know, 
He offers it universally, but, but it must be accepted individually. The Bible says that it's God's desire that none should perish, no, not one. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him. And so he offers it to everybody in this room, but it must be taken individually. Now, when he suffers and died for us on the cross, and we say yes to his invitation, say yes to his marriage proposal, he doesn't give us a ring. That's a statement. My, my wife wears her ring, and it lets everybody know that she's my wife. They look, oh, taken. She belongs to somebody else. It lets the world know. It's a constant reminder to her of the commitment that I've made to her. When I see it, it's a reminder of my commitment. And when we give our life to Jesus Christ, he doesn't give us a ring, but he gives us the Holy Spirit. He seals us to say, you're mine. This is a 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week reminder that you are now a part of my bride. You now belong to me. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And that also shows the world around you that you're taken because when the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, you become a different person. Amen? People at work say, dude, what happened to you? Right? What happened was Jesus is what happened. And so we say yes to his proposal. The Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us. And then, and only then, can we take his name. Just like my wife took my name, you can take his name. And that name is Christian. It's only when we say yes to the proposal. It's only when we come before him and say, yes, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. It's only then that his Holy Spirit comes to live inside, and it's only then that we become a Christian. Now, if you're here and you think you're a Christian because you were born in the United States, or because, uh, you know, you got a Christian last name. My, one of my son's uh, Little League coaches a couple years ago, his last name is Priest, so he thought he was saved automatically. My last name is Priest. i got to be going to heaven. I'm like, oh, bro, I don't think that's going to work, right? The reality is, it cannot be good works. It cannot be anything else. It cannot be the things that you've done. It can't be because someone in your family was a pastor or your nephew is a priest. None of that's going to work. God has no grandchildren. Amen? You can't be saved because someone in your family knew God a long time ago. It's offered universally. It must be accepted individually. He's proposing to you this morning. He's saying, I love you so very much. You must first say that you're a sinner, and all of you are if you didn't know it. And now he's saying, but it's okay because I paid the price for you. Will you accept my proposal? If the worship team will come on up. I'm going to close the worship song. And as we do, I want to encourage you. The Bible is very simple. I'm so glad that becoming a Christian isn't crawling on your knees up a 70-mile mountain filled with crushed glass. Amen? And so many people want to make this, you know, this heavy, burdensome thing. But the reality is that coming to know Christ is very simple. It's one, understanding you're a sinner and that you're in need of a Savior. And it's simply just coming before him. It says in Romans, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved in the glory of the Father. If you're here today and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, we're going to give you an opportunity to do that right now. And I'm not telling you to join Calvary Chapel Santa Cruz because... That's not what it's about. It's not about joining a club. It's not, I don't want your money. We didn't pass an offering this morning, did we? We didn't try to get your money, right? Okay. We don't want your money. We, we just, God loves you guys. He brought you here by divine appointment. The Bible says, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. If you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father in heaven. He loves you guys. No matter what you've done, where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you, Lord, again for your grace. And we thank you that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. Not because we're perfect, not because we're holy, not because we're good, but because you are so good.
And Lord, that you look down upon us as your children. You want to adopt us into your family. You want to cover us in your wings. Lord, I pray if there's even one person here this morning that does not know you, that Lord, as you brought them here by divine appointment, that they would not walk out of this place without you. That Lord, it says in your Bible that all the angels in heaven rejoice when even one person comes to know you. And Father, I pray if there's even just one, Lord, that this morning that would be a, that divine appointment, that supernatural occurrence, the most important act of their entire lifetime, Lord, is restoring sinful man back to holy God. With every head bowed, just real quickly, if you're here this morning and God's been speaking to you by the power of His Holy Spirit, not the words of men, but the Holy Spirit's been touching your heart, and you say, yes, I know that I'm a sinner and I need to give my life to Jesus Christ. I want to walk out of here knowing that I'm heaven-bound that I've been born again. It's very simple. You just confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and you will be saved. The enemy doesn't want you to do it, but the Lord loves you. If you're here this morning and you want to give your life to Jesus Christ, I'm just going to ask you to do something very simple, just to raise your hand and I will pray with you. Is there anybody here at all? Even one person. God bless you. God bless you. Anybody else? God bless you. Anybody else? The Lord loves you guys. You're here by divine appointment. The enemy doesn't want you to do this. He loves you. Is there anybody else? God bless you. God bless you. Anybody else? Praise the Lord. Angels in heaven are rejoicing even right now. God is so good. Let's all pray together. Everybody repeating after me with these who raised their hand. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. We confess that we are sinners. We ask you to forgive us for our sin. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for dying on the cross and paying for my sin. I believe that I've been born again. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Help me to walk with you. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Amen. If you're here today and you prayed that for the first time, you know the Bible says that all the angels in heaven rejoice. The kingdom of God has been added to today. You can know that when you stand before Almighty God on Judgment Day, even though you stand there like that woman caught in adultery deserving of death, you can know that Jesus will say, enter in my good and faithful servant. He'll step forward and say, she's with me, he's with me, I paid the price for that. Isn't God good? Amen? And you can hang out with us forever, so get used to us, all right? Everybody stand up and let's close the worship song.